Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through to chapter 12, verse 12. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he is walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, then he'll say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Righto, well, I've noticed over the last few weeks the Australian media have been churning out editorials with a big dose of self-pity and expressed outrage. Why? Because the homes and offices of a couple of journalists have have been raided by the federal police. Uh, You see, they feel that the notion of the freedom of the press should mean that when it comes to information, how journalists gather it and what they publish, well, that shouldn't matter. They, They believe that their profession as journalists should give them immunity from search, seizure and prosecution. Uh, The alleged defence is that contrary to the Official Secrets Act, a government employee gave top secret information to journalists surrounding issues of national security. And so the police are looking for evidence so that they can prosecute the offenders, Um, definitely the bloke who provided the information and possibly even the journalists who received it and published information from it. And, of course, the media are using their very strong public voice to argue that the police shouldn't have the authority to do this. 
Let's talk about authority. Um, some of you got a giggle that last weekend, a car rapidly caught up with me from behind with flashing lights red and blue. I stopped and I waited. Even though it was a cold day, I even wound my window down while I waited. And a polite gentleman in a dark blue uniform with a gun on his hip and numerous other little pouches of paraphernalia and a microphone on the, on the epaulette of his shirt approached me. And he held out a, a little electronic device with a white tube on top and he asked me to blow into this little white tube. I did. And then he asked if he could see my licence. So I reached down beside me and I found my wallet and I pulled the licence out of it and handed it to him. And then he wanted to know, well, what's in those locked boxes that's in the back of your ute? And I didn't know how that was going to go. I, I had to say to him, well, they're actually full of pistols. I've just come back from the pistol club. He didn't skip a beat. He said, that's OK. I don't need to see them. And then he told me that he'd, I'd just have to wait because his mate behind me was still checking, checking into me. I look in the rear vision mirror and I can see another gentleman dressed in the same sort of uniform with the same sort of paraphernalia on his hip talking into his mobile telephone. Now, I don't know who he rang, but I suspect that, he is that these weren't local police. I suspect he is probably ringing the local police to say, hey, listen, do we need to check into this bloke a bit more or can we let him go? Whatever it was, the news must have been okay because they let me go. Now, by what authority did they do these things? I mean, no ordinary person is allowed to do what this man was doing. But a police officer, by the authority of their office, have every right. And they have every authority to do this. And I'm glad that they do. And as a member of the public, it is right that I should submit to that authority. And even journalists are not above the law. It is right for a journalist to submit to the appropriate authorities. But it's only the appropriate authorities to whom we should submit. See, I'm not allowed to, to start up my own private police force. I'm not allowed to put red and blue flashing lights on my car. And I'm certainly not allowed to pull you over and demand a breath test. And I am absolutely not allowed to issue you with an on-the-spot fine, although that would be a very lucrative business. It's a matter of authority. Now, one day, Jesus came, came into the temple and he drove out the traders. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He knocked over the seats of those who were selling pigeons. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he took it on himself to teach at the temple. And some of the teaching that, that Jesus gave was very pointed and was filled with condemnation. And so the next day, when Jesus turned up at the temple again, the religious leaders had obviously been stewing about this and thinking about, about it all and goes, well, who does, who's this young start, upstart think that he is? I mean, what is he, some country hick from Galilee, and he turns up here and he acts as if he owns the place. And they quite rightly wanted to know, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, that's a very important question. It's a valid question. What right did Jesus have to do what he was doing? I mean, even what he said about them being a den of thieves... That, that was a very pointed 
sort of a statement, and it was more pointed than what we realised. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The den of thieves accusation that Jesus levelled at them wasn't so much about them ripping people off. It wasn't about them selling overpriced religious trinkets. He was actually pointing back to the prophet Jeremiah and something that Jeremiah said. And so it actually became an accusation that everything that's happening at the temple is empty and fruitless and that the religious leaders themselves were largely godless and corrupt and unjust. Therefore, it was an accusation and a foretelling that the Jesus is going to, sorry that God is going to destroy the temple. Now, they're pretty big allegations. By what authority did Jesus have the right to throw accusations like those around? Accusations that were squarely pointed at those who were the recognised religious authorities. What gave Jesus the right? I mean, even in many churches today, quite rightly, not just anyone is allowed to get up and teach. You know, I wouldn't be allowed to teach in many churches today. I don't have the right credentials. I don't have the right training. I don't have the right ordination. I didn't go to the right sort of theological college. I don't wear the right clothes. And of course, the more letters and the more degrees that a person has after their name, the more their authority is recognised. And you know what? It wasn't so different in first century Jerusalem. They were probably wanting to know, all right, Jesus, you're here you're acting like a rabbi, you're doing all this teaching, you're taking all of this authority for yourself, but not just anybody can be a rabbi. Who'd you train under? What's your authority? What's your credentials? And Jesus' answer, um, I've always thought of it as, as a smarty pants non-answer, right? but it's not. It's much deeper than that. It might seem like Jesus was avoiding the question, but he wasn't. Jesus said, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, Jesus' response effectively did two things. Firstly, it exposed the political nature of the religious leaders. And when I'm using that word political here, I don't mean in, in, in the terms of relating to government. I'm using it in the derogatory sense of the word. Right? You know why so many Australians dislike politicians? It's because of the few politicians. Or that's probably generous. It's probably because of the not-so-few politicians who are political in the derogatory sense of the word. Now, do you know what I mean by that? They're the sorts of people who will run with the foxes but hunt with the hounds. They're the sorts of people who will never give you a straight answer. And you never know truly what you believe. You know, like somebody once said, how can you tell if a politician is lying? You watch very carefully, and if their lips are moving, then they're lying. Now, that's not true of all politicians. But in the derogatory sense of the word, it is. See, rather than stand by the truth, they will tell you what they think the, pol the public want to hear. And their own position will change with, with the wind of public opinion. 
And so they might promise you one thing today, but then in a few weeks' time, change their mind about it. So as the Macquarie Dictionary puts it, a politician, this is in the derogatory sense, is one who seeks power or advancement within an organisation by unscrupulous or dishonest means. And Jesus was asking them for a straight answer. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Right. So, so that was just similar to, to asking, well, was John sent from God? Was John the Baptist doing God's will? Did John have the authority of God behind him? Or was John the Baptist a fraud? When John called the nation to a baptism of repentance to prepare them for the coming kingdom of God, was he speaking with a godly authority or was he acting on his own authority? And this is where the religious leaders played the political game. They wouldn't answer him. It's like at the moment, the leader of the Greens Party, Richard Donatale, um, has refused to comment on the hero of the Greens Party, Bob Brown's crusade to have a big wind turbine project canned. Have you seen that on the news? So, so here's the Greens Party, the ex-leader, the starter, the founder of the Greens Party is against this big wind farm. Um, and he's coming up with all these arguments. Why? Oh, it's going to stop the birds. It'll chase the birds away. And they're, they're noisy things. And oh, they're terrible things. Now, and yet this has been a policy of the Greens Party all along. And in the past, Richard Di Natale, the, the, the current leader, has... Um, said that complaints like this uh, uh, that people make against wind farms is sort of like, like taking seriously alien abductions, right? He's just saying it's a load of nonsense. But now that the hero of the Greens Party is saying it, he's being asked the question, will you comment on this? Oh, no, I, I don't have anything to say. You see, it's just an example of how our politicians become political, and the religious leaders were doing pretty much the same thing here. They were playing the political game with Jesus and his question. You see, most people, the ordinary plebs, firmly believe that John the Baptist was a prophet of God. That's why they went out into the wilderness to hear him preach. That's why they went out there to repent and be baptised. They believed that, that they were being part of something amazing that God was doing. They were preparing for the coming kingdom of God. But the religious leaders, whether they knew John was a prophet of God or not, they largely rejected John's message. And they didn't get on well with John. I know one time they turned up out there in the wilderness and John looked at them and goes, You brood of vipers! Who told you to flee from the coming wrath? And so these religious leaders were in a bit of a bind. How are we going to answer that question of Jesus? Right? If we say that John the Baptist was from heaven, then the next thing that Jesus is going to want to know is, well, why didn't you believe him? Why didn't you repent? But we can't very well say that he was just a human fraud because that'll make us really unpopular because all the people believed that he was a prophet. And so they played the political game. Yeah, we don't know. And so Jesus exposed them as the corrupt, 
self-interested political game-playing frauds that they really were. But I think more important than this is the second thing that Jesus' response did. Far from being a smarty-pants non-answer, Jesus was clearly saying something about himself. Jesus was aligning himself with John the Baptist and the source of his authority. Jesus asked the question, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And what that did was it forced the religious leaders, and it forces us today, to ask this same question of Jesus. When the religious leaders asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? It's pretty clear that they were looking for what human authority? What's your credentials? But Jesus makes the point that there is an authority that is far greater than any human authority. And so it becomes a matter of human authority or godly authority. Was it a fleshly authority or a spiritual authority? Did Jesus' authority come from this world or did it come from the very throne room of heaven itself? And which authority is greater? And the answer to this question is the most significant truth that any of us can ever discover. By what authority did Jesus do what he did? If it was by merely a human authority, if he just took it upon himself, then that would mean that he was either delusional or dishonest. That would mean he was either crazy or he was a con man. And if Jesus was either crazy or a con man, then feel free to disregard everything he said. Feel free to disregard everything he did. Because it's just irrelevant. It means nothing. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if the authority of Jesus actually comes from the authority of God, so if Jesus did what he did by the authority of God, if Jesus said what he said and taught what he taught by the authority of God, then how can anyone ever in their right mind ignore him? And deep down, the evidence is there. All we have to do is open our eyes and see it. But many people today are just like those religious leaders back then. God reveals himself to them, but they refuse to see it. Jesus is alive, but they treat him as if he's dead. Jesus Christ is the most significant figure, not just in all of history, but in all of eternity. He's the most important figure, not just in this world, but in the entirety of the cosmos. And the heavenly authority of Jesus demands our attention. It demands our submission. The authority of Jesus demands our worship and our loyalty. Now, at this point, Jesus told them a parable. What he did was he actually borrowed an image from the prophet Isaiah. A man planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and he dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Now all of this is coming straight from Isaiah chapter 5. It was an image of how God lovingly cared for his chosen people Israel. 
Now, in Isaiah, it goes on to tell about how the vineyard didn't bear any good fruit, just bad. And so how God was going to remove his protection from the vineyard. He's going to stop tending the vineyard and let it go to rack and ruin. Let it be overrun and the vineyard would be destroyed. But in Jesus' story, he gives it a very different twist. Jesus' parable is clearly about the religious leaders and against the religious leaders. And those religious leaders didn't miss the point. And so the vineyard, it still represents God's people. The owner of the vineyard is still God. He went to a great deal of attention to make sure that the vineyard had everything that it needed. And he leased it to the tenants and went into another country. Now, the tenants were the ones who were supposed to look after the vineyard. The tenants are the religious leaders. Now, part of the deal must have obviously been that when it came time for harvest, um, the owner of the vineyard was entitled to his share of the fruit. And so he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, to us, this parable might need a little bit of explaining, but to a Jew it was very obvious The servants were the prophets. God had sent many prophets to Israel demanding that they become fruitful, that they would be producing the fruit of faith, that they would be producing the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit. Some they beat, some they laughed at, some they mocked, they humiliated, some they shamed, some they imprisoned, some they killed. So then he thought, I'll send my son. They'll have to take notice of him. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. <laughs> You've got to throw the evil laugh in there so it gives you a bit of a picture of what they're thinking. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, There's something to this parable that I don't think that I ever really grasped until just a few days ago. See, I used to think that the metaphor of this parable was simply an imperfect metaphor. Because in the parable, the evil tenants recognised the son for who he was. And I used to think that the religious leaders, uh, who the tenants represent didn't recognise Jesus. It was just that they didn't recognise that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, I don't know why I'm so thick and why it took me so many years to get it, but the whole point of the parable is that they did recognise him. I think what Jesus is saying is deep down they did recognise him. And it was clear for them to see They just weren't willing to see it. 
You see, all, all of these things that Jesus had been doing was revealing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the whole purpose of the Gospel of Mark, is, is to reveal that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And everything that Jesus did was stacking up to be, hey, this is something that not just any human can do. This is the Christ. It's the Son of God. But the religious leaders refused to see it. Sometimes they'd go out to check him out. And instead of praising God for the coming that the Messiah had come, they'd try and find some point of law to pull him down on. See, in the Jewish religious world, they had the power and they had the authority. They had the respect and they had the honour of being leaders. And they didn't want to lose any of that. The religious leaders themselves were fruitless. They weren't living godly lives and, and they didn't want to be God, living godly lives, quite frankly. They, they liked things they were the way they were. They were quite happy with the status quo. What this parable is saying is they were treating God as if he was dead. Let me explain that. They saw the son and said, let's kill the heir and then it'll all be ours. <laughs> got to throw the evil laugh in again. Right? They've got the plan. They've got the plot. Right? Now, for that to work, they must have been assuming that the master was already dead. Or at least they were treating him as if he was dead. He's an, he's an irrelevance. Because they just assumed there would be no consequences to, to them killing the heir. It was sort of like they were thinking, okay, the master must be dead. Here's the son come to claim his inheritance. Let's knock him off and then it'll all be ours. We'll be the owners. Insert evil laugh here. But they were wrong. They were very wrong. The owner of the vineyard wasn't dead. They're probably thinking that he was, that he didn't already take action against them when, it, when they'd been killing his servants. He wasn't dead. And he wasn't weak. And he wasn't impotent. And he wasn't powerless. And he would take action. Jesus said, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvellous in our eyes. Now he's talking about judgment here. The Jewish religious leaders and the old Jewish religious system was going to be judged. And Jesus has already, we've already talked about this over the last few weeks. And of course, this did happen in AD 70, when Antiochus Epiphanes put down an uprising and the temple was destroyed and the whole Jewish religious system was, was stopped and many people were killed. These were terrible times. Jesus was the stone that the builders rejected. But he has become the cornerstone. 
He's become the capstone. The different Bibles translate it in different ways. The, the actual translation is probably best to say he is the headstone, but we won't use that because then we tend to think of a, a uh, tombstone. But he, it means he is the most important stone in the building, whether that's the cornerstone or whether that's the capstone or whether it's the keystone, doesn't matter. And this was God's plan right from the beginning that Jesus would be rejected, but he would become so important. So we can see what the application was for them, right? The whole Jewish religious system's coming to an end. The son would be killed, but he would, he would come back to life again. But for us today, what's the application for us? I reckon for the application of this, we need to look at it on two different levels. Firstly, I believe it's really important that we remember that what Jesus originally said was aimed fair and square at the religious leaders. Um, and so there is a serious, serious warning here for leaders in the church. Now, we probably don't often hear um, people preaching on the warning to the leaders in the church. We'd rather people who are leaders in the church usually tell other people about the warnings for them. But it's important for us as leaders of the church to recognise this warning. Some leaders in some churches act as if God is dead. They act as if they're a law unto themselves. Um, they see themselves as having power and authority and they exercise that power and that authority for their own purposes. Some do it for dishonest gain. Some do it just to feed their egos so that they can have a following. Some act in greed. Some perpetrate appalling abuses on the weak and the vulnerable. And we've all read the unsavoury headlines of, of people who have held positions of leadership in the church acting as if God isn't watching them. And acting as if God is dead and as if there is going to be no consequences to their action. And even some theologies will teach that, you know, there is no judgment. Provided you believe in Jesus, there will be no judgment for you. But even for leaders, or should I say especially for leaders in the church, the day of judgment is coming. We cannot go on acting as if God is dead and abuse the power of position as leaders. If you want to get more of an insight into that, read Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 to 51. You'll hear a parable about how some servants that started treating other servants poorly and abusing them. And when the master arrives, he cuts those servants to pieces. I also believe it's important that leaders in the church don't become like the religious leaders by becoming political in the derogatory sense of the word. Um, I don't mean uh, political in the sense of the word you shouldn't be involved in government, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, and for some people that's their calling. I'm talking about in the derogatory sense of the word, being political. 
many leaders in the church of today, especially some of the most prominent leaders, have a policy of avoiding unpopular topics. You see, it might interfere with their church growth. And it's just like how the religious leaders wouldn't answer Jesus' tough question. They wouldn't say, they won't say what they truly believe simply because it's unpopular to say it. That's what I mean when I say they they become political in what they say. And this is why we preach our way through whole books of the Bible so that we don't miss anything out. And you'll hear some really unpopular teaching coming from here um, because we won't shy away from it just because it's unpopular. It's been very telling over the last couple of months in in the wake of the whole sacking of Israel Falau to hear how various church leaders have responded and what they've had to say on issues like hell and homosexuality and how one should or shouldn't share their faith. And the number of church leaders who have just sort of gone, oh, no, no, we, we would never talk about hell here because that's not loving. Or, oh, no, I'm not going to answer that question on, on is homosexual behaviour sinful or not because... That's, that, that's just going to upset people. And instead they go all political and wishy-washy and they don't want to say anything to offend anyone. And they pretend that what they're doing is following in the footsteps of Jesus. But that's not at all true. The reality is that Jesus actually offended lots of people. I know when I read the teaching of Jesus, I'm often offended. Right, so... The first lesson for us is a warning to church leaders. But I reckon the second lesson, and some of you might be going, oh, thank goodness that I didn't have to worry about any of that. I'm not a church leader. Well, some of you are. Some of you are leaders in the church. But there's also the second lesson, which applies to all of us, and, and it's a lesson for unbelievers too. By what authority did Jesus do what he did? And by what authority did Jesus say what he said? Jesus acts with the authority of the Lord God Almighty. And you know what? We do too. When the Lord gives us an assignment, And when we share our faith, when we share the good news of Jesus Christ, no matter how simply we're doing it, we're not doing this by the authority of men. We're not just taking it upon ourselves and doing it with the authority of ourselves. When we are serving God, we are doing it with the full commission and the full authority of the Lord God Almighty. I wonder, do we realise that? Do we realise that... We have the authority of God behind us. We can confidently step out and share our faith with someone. You know, we, we often worry, oh, what right do I have to do that? As if it's a human authority by which we do it. No, we have the authority of God behind us to do this. And once again, I'm going to use the example of Israel Falau. See, it didn't only stir up a hornet's nest, it has generated a whole lot of discussion about sharing of faith. You know what? People of the world are talking more about, how, and the media are talking more about, what right a person has to share their faith than what Christians have talked about it for years. 
And for many people, the criticism has been, what right did this fellow have to call out anybody as being a sinner? What right does anybody have to say that somebody might go to hell? Right? So in essence, what they're saying is, by what authority is he doing this? He doesn't have the right. But guess what? He does. See, they're looking for a human authority, just as those religious leaders were looking for a human authority. But we have a godly authority. And I think what Jesus is saying to us is even people who reject Jesus, no matter how much they protest to the contrary, deep down, they know who Jesus is. God reveals himself. He always has. In Romans, I think it is, tells us that, we, that even the creation itself reveals God. God reveals himself, but, but a hard heart refuses to see it. And this is precisely, sorry, it's precisely because of who Jesus is that they reject him. Because Jesus is the Christ, because he is the Son of God, Jesus has a legitimate claim on our lives that many don't want to give in to. The authority of Jesus is a heavenly authority. It, it overrides every other authority and even our own authority. The heavenly authority of Jesus demands something, demands our attention, our submission, our worship and our loyalty. Many people would rather take the place of God for themselves and treat God as if he's dead. Right? That, that's in essence what the religious leaders were doing. That they, they, were, they were wanting this authority for themselves. And in that parable that Jesus told, they were treating the master as if he was dead. They wanted the inheritance for themselves. They wanted to be God. See, God demands fruit in our lives, the fruit of faith, the fruit of righteousness. But some people treat him as if he's dead and they reject the son and they take the place of God for themselves. But Jesus' warning is the day of judgment is coming. The heavenly authority of Jesus demands our attention, submission, worship, and loyalty. What does the heavenly authority of Jesus mean for you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we recognise your heavenly authority. Everything you said, everything you taught, everything you did came and was at the authority of the Lord our God in heaven. Lord, help us to submit to that authority. Help us to recognise your complete authority over ourselves. Lord, help us to give to you 
our whole attention as we submit and as we worship and as we give you our complete loyalty. And Lord, we want to thank you for the heavenly authority by which you send us out into the world. Lord, at times when we start to cringe and think, by by what right do I do this? By what right, by what authority do I have to tell others about Jesus? Lord, remind us of your commissioning. Remind us of the heavenly authority that overrides every earthly authority. In Jesus' name, amen.